All right, we're going to start here. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. This is David writing in 1 Chronicles, and he's writing about the temple. He's, uh, he's built this incredible temple for God, this dwelling place for him. Or rather, he's set everything ready for his son to build it, actually. And um, he says that so he's already prepared everything that's necessary for Solomon to build it. He's, he's, he's got a big, big pot of money and gold and silver and all this. And then he says, because I have set my affection on the house of God, I have given to the house of God over and above all that I have prepared my own special treasure of gold and silver. And so what we see is that David had set his affection on something, in this case the house of God, and that caused him to act in a certain way because he'd set his affection on something. His affection, his love, his passion had caused him to act in a certain way. His affection directed his time and action, energy and finance. And that's because of this truth. Our actions follow our affections. So our actions follow our affections. So what this means is my time, energy, and finance follow my affections. So because I've set my affection on my wife here, then I give time, energy, and finance towards her. Because I have an affection for cricket, then I spend money watching it. I don't spend time watching EastEnders because I have no affection for it. I don't know why anybody would, but there we go. I have no affection for it. There are many things I don't have any affection for because I don't really care about them and I'm not interested and therefore I don't spend any time, money or energy on them. So here's the thing, our actions tell us where our affections lie. After all, Jesus said this, your heart will always pursue what you value. What's interesting is that lots of people say they value something, but in reality you can tell what you value by where your action is. Your actions tell you what you actually value. So people can say all sorts of things about what's important and where their affections are and who they love and what they love, but actually your actions tell you where your real affections are. Because, as Jesus said, your heart will always pursue what you value. The thing is, lots of people say they value things, but what you say you value can only be measured by what you actually see and what you actually pursue. So if you want to know what you really value, you can just look at your bank account. If you want to know what you really value, you can look at your diary. And that'll tell you what you really value. Now, of course, you might come back and go, well, I don't have choice to do it. Well, yeah, you do. You do. You can choose to do whatever you want to do. That's the reality. You have choice. Most people don't like it when I say these things because it means they have to own up to the reality that they're choosing to do what they're doing. But the reality is you are free to choose. You are free to choose. Of course, you've got to gain an income somewhere, but in that you can choose, and you can choose not to have an income. That is also a choice. You can choose to pay a lot of money to your energy company right now so you can be warm, or you can choose to be cold. That is also a choice. It might not be an easy choice. It might not be a choice you want to make, but it's a choice. But at the end of the day, your heart will always pursue what you value. And our ability to choose... Of course, we, we talked a lot about this um, just before Christmas. I, I talked about this choice thing and how our whole culture and system is built on choice and our ability to choose. If you think about all the companies that have, 
uh, kind of taken off in the last 10 years, they're nearly all to do with increasing your ability to choose and allegedly making your life easier. Allegedly being the most powerful word in that statement, because a lot of time it doesn't make your life easier. But essentially, choice has suddenly gone through the roof. What's fascinating is that choice does not actually make life easier. There's been a number of studies all around the uh, world from various people that show the more choice you get actually leads to paralysis, and it actually doesn't make you any happier. There was a study done of, um, in America in a high market, uh, upmarket grocery store, they put six new jams on sale, and uh, you, could ha you could choose whichever one you wanted, have a bit of a choice, and then you got a coupon for going back and buying one of those jams. The next day they put 24 jams on sale and said you can have a coupon for coming back and buying one of these jams. It costs 24 jams. People are more likely to find one they like, aren't they? In truth, of the six jams, 30% of people came back and bought one. Of the 24 jams, 3% of people came back and bought one. And that's borne out in lots and lots of studies is the more choice you have, the more difficult it is to make a choice. And often it becomes so overwhelming you don't actually make a choice. Because you go, I have no idea what to choose. And then, of course, you see, I don't know about, has this ever happened to you? You sit in a restaurant and you're like, oh, I wish, I could, I wish there were just two options. Because you know the person who sat next to you might choose something, and when it comes, you'll have choice regret. I hate that moment when the waitress comes with my meal because I'm like, did I make the right choice? Or am I going to be disappointed? Of course, not because my meal isn't wonderful and I don't like it, but just there might be something over there that looks even, and it comes and I'm like, oh, I didn't it again. <laughs> Especially when I thought I might order it. And I'm toying between the two. Oh, it's so annoying. Sometimes it's easier when, you know, sometimes, and I don't wish I lived before because I, I love the moment we're living in, but sometimes, you know, the only takeaway you could have 50 years ago were fish and chips. Now I go to four different places. Like, what the heck's that all about? How is that making my life easier? I want KFC, I want Chinese, I want curry, I want... You're having beans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but can I have HP or Heinz or Asdazon? <laughs> I talk about choice because we live in this place of choice. But I think when it comes to following Jesus, this idea of choice, we kind of overlay it onto Jesus somehow. And assume that when it comes to Jesus, we can also pick and mix and choose. And Jesus, of course, is very uh, multifaceted. That is to say, there are many different sides to him in one sense. If you read the Gospels, you see he exhibits this whole range of emotions and characteristics. I mean, if you actually, um, I don't know whether, see if I can get this to work here. There we go. These are all the names of Jesus in the Bible. I mean, talk about pick and mix. And of course, there's all those names because the biblical writers are trying to get to grips with this God. They're trying to express him and explain him in words. And so there's all these different things going on as to who he is and what he is and what he's like. There's a lot of different sides to Jesus. There's a lot of different kind of places to God. There's like, he's so big and so massive. Of course, he's a good, good father that you can lean back in. He's also Lord of all the earth and the Lion of Judah and the Judge of all the world. And if you think about Jesus, I touched on this last week, if you think about Jesus, Jesus displayed all these different sides to him. 
There were moments when he was deeply, it would seem when, it, when he was more compassionate, if you like, when he'd, you know, what do you want? I want to be healed. Okay, get up and walk. And then there's other moments when he takes some rope, winds it together and starts shouting at people and throwing tables everywhere. There's like these different facets of him that come out. But of course, he's the exact image of the invisible God. So somehow he's trying to display all this. All in one go. I wonder whether sometimes we treat Jesus a bit like this. I wonder whether sometimes there's parts of him that we like and parts of him we don't like. And we think we can choose. We think we can gain. But you see, we know it doesn't really work like that. We like that with people. We see, good, we see things in people we like and we see things in people we don't like. And we go, if they could just lose this part of them but keep this part of them, that would be fantastic. If I could just have, have them when they're like this but not when they're like this, that would be great. And of course, that's how we think a lot of the time, isn't it? We kind of, we kind of, we, we want, we want to pick and mix in people. We want to pick and mix all the time. But I think there's a real danger that you can't choose which part of Jesus you want and which part of Jesus we like. We can't take the bits we want and leave the bits we don't. It doesn't kind of work like that. It doesn't work with people. It doesn't work with Jesus. We do seem to enjoy the compassionate, gentle side. We seem to embrace the expression of him that stands waiting for us ready with sandals, robe, and ring. We embrace the unconditional love and the complete and utter forgiveness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we love that bit of Jesus. That's all fantastic, isn't it? Because then I can do what I want, and he still loves me, and makes no demands, and he's not checking me out. And when I get it wrong, he's all there, and it's all fine. And of course, there is that side of Jesus. But there's also another side of Jesus. God is much more than that. He's more than a wonderful father. He's also Lord, Master, King of Kings, Glorious One, Radiant, Magnificent, the one who inspires awe and trembling. He is Majesty, Most High God, Mighty One, Ancient of Days, Lion of Judah. He is. I mean, he, he is, Isaiah describes him like this look. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There were seraphs with six wings. Uh, they're singing, holy, holy, holy. Doorposts and thresholds are shaking. There's smoke everywhere. That sounds a bit different from leave you. Do you get me? But it's all one. It is all one. And you don't get to lean back without going flipping neck. I think I might die. It, 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 you can't kind of pick and mix him, I don't think. Well, you can't pick and mix him. And I think we're in danger of picking and mixing the bits we like and the bits we don't like. The problem is, if we don't understand that as well as Father, he's also Lord, as well as kind of leaning back and all that, you know, robe and ring stuff, he's also the one who shakes the thresholds and the temple fills with smoke. And please don't give me Old Testament, New Testament. It's the same. He's the same God doing all the way through. He's just expressing himself in different ways. Going on. And in the end, it's always an invitation, but it's always an invitation to pruning. Or I use another analogy, it's an invitation to a narrow path. These are the very well-known words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
Now, that, that Greek word there used for life is zoe, which means the absolute fullness of life. And yes, you can use these verses to talk about there's one way of the Father and you've got to go through Jesus and that's all true. But, but I think Jesus is doing something much bigger in this passage. He's doing something much bigger. To start to, to bring this into land, the question, I want you to think about this question. The question is not really whether you want to be healed, changed, or transformed. The question is not whether Jesus wants to heal, change, or transform you. The question really is, is he your father who's going to let you come in at two o'clock every morning? Or is he also a master who demands change for your sake? Because he knows that coming in at two in the morning won't be helpful in the long run. And the idea of choice, let's bring it back around to choice, is fascinating because the more you know Jesus and the more you grasp just who he is and whose you are, the less choice you have about what you do and where you go. We've said that. But also, the more you see how incredible he is and how much he loves to heal, change, and transform you, then the easier it becomes to welcome that change and transformation. Because here's the thing. Life with Jesus isn't really about a choice between a hard path and an easy path. It's a choice between two hard paths with two different destinations. That's the reality. There is no easy path. Once you've said you're going to follow a Jesus, well, there is actually, but it leads to a different destination. But they're both really hard paths. Two hard and challenging paths that lead to very different destinations. One hard path is signpost discipleship that leads to healing and restoration. The other hard path is signposted just carrying on as you are. So there's these two paths. The problem is when you look at the path marked staying as you are, initially it seems like a very nice path. It seems like it's a much easier path, but what you don't see is around the corner. What you don't see is a little bit down the line. What you don't see is what happens further on when the path gets much more difficult because you have to live as you are. And the challenge is this path about healing and discipleship and transformation, that path already looks really difficult, but what you don't see is that path gets easier further down the line. In his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a selfish boy, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, there's a selfish boy named Eustace. He loves his treasures more than anything else, and one night he falls asleep with a gold bracelet on his arm, really happy to have it. In his sleep, he transforms into a dragon, becoming an outward manifestation of his inward selfishness and greed. And he's, he's driven out from humanity, and in a moment of loneliness, begins to cry. In that moment of loneliness, Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure, arrives. He offers to help Eustace remove his dragonness by removing the dragon skin. Eustace tries to remove the skin, but to no avail, and Aslan offers to help. This is how Lewis writes the story of removing Eustace's dragon skin. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there he was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath. Now I'd no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. 
I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. There is the journey, and then there's the destination. The destination for Eustace was to be a boy again, and to be dressed in new clothes. The journey was hard. The alternative for Eustace was to have an easier journey, but never reach the destination, or a seemingly easier journey, but never reach the destination of being a boy again. It fascinated me that when Joe shared about a shoulder, she said, I had to do everything the physio told me not to, and I agreed, that's not a prophetic word. <laughs> but what she said was, it hurt at first. And then it got free. Lewis writes, the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I felt. And eventually, he says, after that, it became perfectly delicious. And I found all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I turned into a boy again. always, always, always be a good, good father. But a good father, a good father will always point out that there's a better way to live while still receiving you when you're walking at two in the morning. He will always receive you, always welcome you home, but he'll also point out that there might be a better way to live. And that better way to live will be hard at first. it's hard already that's the reality and the problem with the message of the kingdom is that it goes exactly against everything in our culture because everything is about making life easy everything is about making life easy but life is not easy life is hard but doing the hard work leads to Zoe, which is the absolute fullness of life. And part of that, part of that, because there's another part of this pick and mix, which is I think a lot of the time we decide which parts of our life we're going to let Jesus into. So we pick and choose. Well, we're going to talk to you about that, but we're not going to let you there. We're going to let all that sort of stuff. And of course, he can only do some good in those parts we let him in. Ellie, just come and share what was going on for you in the, in the worship. So just as the worship started, I um, got kind of a picture of a throne. And thrones have, as an imagery, have, have God has spoken to me about them before, and usually in the context of who's sitting on your throne, who's sitting on the throne of your heart, is it me? If it's not me, it needs to be me kind of thing. Um, so I, I was seeing this throne, and um, I started to wonder, where is the throne? So the picture became this palace or, or a castle or whatever, and the throne was initially at the entrance. And again, God has spoken a lot to me about um, kind of positioning himself, uh, his angels and etc. the entrance of my mind and my heart, guarding my emotions, guarding my thoughts and all that stuff. And then I wondered, could it be elsewhere? Could this throne be, be elsewhere? 
and he took me to the depth of of that um, palace, like into the dungeons and into like just the the deepest, f- furthest point from the entrance, um, and just kind of left left it there. And then uh, I was stood up, and then it was like, and I, I was asking what. What does it mean? What is what's in this? What's in this about depth? I felt quite ill-equipped to think about this. I don't understand depth throne. It's a strange place for a throne. And he just said, well, "Sit down, sit on the floor. Uh, you, you you can be closer to it." So I was like, "Oh, sit on the floor, <laughs> touch the ground." Um, still don't fully know the extent of it. That's at, at that point I came to Adam, but um, I felt that like there was something God was trying to show me about having a throne position in different parts of the. Of, of this place and the dungeon particularly is in the depth, is near the foundations, which I'm sure there's a lot of symbol, symbols in there. But it's a dark place as well. So, yeah, that, that's all I got. It's, it's full of more revelation to go. No, no, that's great. That's great. Well, I suppose it is a dark place. It's a damp place. It's a place nobody wants to go. How many wants to go in a dungeon? But of course, in truth, all those parts you don't want to go, Jesus is already there. So the throne was already there. It was already in the places where you perhaps wouldn't want it to go. But there was something in that. You went, okay, no, you can go lower. And maybe, maybe there's something about, okay, no, the places you don't want to go, A, I'm already there. And as you go there and get as low as you can in it, I'm there. And my throne is there, and my victory is there, and my life is there. But of course, that's not easy. And I suppose that's what I mean about pick and mix. Because, how did I write this? You can't really pick which rooms of your life he enters, because he's already there. He's already in them all. He's in everything. He's in every memory. He's in every moment. He's in every future. He's in every past. He's in every la- He's in everything. The question isn't whether he's there. The question is whether you are going to go there and whether you're going to meet him there. In fact, whether you're going to meet him there is not really a question because he's already there. So you will meet him there if you go there. Okay, that were a few different random thoughts, wasn't it? But anyways, um, here we go. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we we see that you are, there are so many sides to your character, so many sides to who you are, and we see that we're attracted to some parts of you more perhaps than we are others. There are parts of you that we are drawn to, that we find it easier to connect with. And Lord, we thank you, I want to thank you for all the ways that everybody in this house has been able to connect with you all the different ways that they are connected into you and know you and know about you but i am praying father that there might be an expansion of that that we might be expanded in our understanding and our grasp and our welcoming of all the different sides of you 
and your character and who you are. Knowing that at the heart of it all, you are a good, good father in whom we can lean back. And there is nothing scary or terrifying about you. But Father, we want to see the fullness of your character. We want to see the fullness of who you are. We want to know that fullness and be at peace with it. In Jesus' name. Amen.